Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Joe Higginson, Chief Commercial Officer at Identity, the Australian stock exchange listed RegTech company, which he joined earlier this year because he saw lots of opportunities in the payments industry to make use of the company's regulatory reporting services. Joe, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Now, when I look at your website, when I think about your name, um, all sorts of thoughts popped into my mind, but would it be safe for me to describe identity as a reg tech? Oh, absolutely. Um, look, we, we have to take payment data into our system and regulatory reporting is certainly something that needs that. Uh, and it's one of the first products that we released to the marketplace a couple of years ago, working closely with a large bank to be able to have taken all their payment data and finesse that to a regulatory reporting output that, that the regulator actually wants. In the Australian market specifically, you need to actually file those reports directly with the regulator. So we're firmly in this space. You just mentioned regulatory reporting services, clearly what uh, identity does. It's an expensive activity. I, I saw a Deloitte report which put the total cost of regulatory reporting in the banking industry alone at uh, 230 billion uh, euros a year, which is the sum equivalent they've thought to about 10% of total operating costs of those banks. So this is an expensive problem. Why is it proving so hard to fix it? And what tools do you use to fix it? It comes down to incomplete data, really. Um, if you think about the the, the amount of systems and change we've had in the banking space and even in the non-banking space who facilitate payments, you've got underlying systems that um, weren't purpose-built to have brand new user interfaces you know, overlaid on top of them, mobile applications. At, at the source of it all is making sure all those data points are met. Um, a payment message is really the origination of the problem. The money movement isn't the problem. It's having that accurate and complete data. Now, if a country introduces a new regulation saying you want an extra field and that's not attached to the payment message, where is it? So now you're having to find information that's in one part of a bank in one system and another part of a bank that's got all the payment data and merge those two together. And we're talking of millions of records, right? Therein lies the complexity of lining up all that data to meet the regulatory request. So it becomes an expensive exercise when you have to get cohesion between these systems that weren't perhaps talking to each other in the first place. I'm going to come back to that point you just made about incomplete data and, and data silos, because I think the question is an interesting question about how you how you solve that. Before I do, can I also ask you about um, customer onboarding, customer due diligence, these AML, CFT, uh, KYC, sanction screening checks, which all financial institutions have to uh, run. Um, and again, I, uh, Alexis Nexus has come up with some data pointing out how expensive this is. They put the total cost of AML compliance, it's just one facet of this, AML compliance alone in the financial services industry of one country, the United States, at $26.5 billion. When you threw Canada in, it was another five. And then they looked at five countries in Europe and came up with a figure of $83.5 billion. So that's without even counting the cost of financial crime or sanction screening. <laughs> These are very expensive activities. And again, my question is why, why, are, why are banks struggling to, to resolve this? Is it, is it the same problem? Maybe this is my question of, to you about the point you've just made about incomplete data and data silos. So basically these 
am I right to think both regulated reporting and customer due diligence boil down to data problems? All this data scattered across different systems, across silos within your business, lots of different formats. How on earth are you going to integrate that data, come up with a single view which enables you to solve those customer due diligence and regulatory reporting problems? Well, maybe I um, am at risk of oversimplifying it, but, but data is the big problem. Um, the, the other one is sort of that intersection with risk appetite, right? So any organization will design its own risk profile about what customers they want to deal with and collecting that that, that data that they need to fill that risk profile of what customer persona they want fills, fills that need. However, the data side of it would always be incongruent if it doesn't match up to what actually the regulator wants. Now, it sort of becomes a bit of a circle, Dominic, where usually the risk profile of the business will be tuned into what the regulatory reporting framework in one country will be. But if that company then expands and then tries to adopt the same sort of onboarding process for a customer journey, it may be incongruent with what the regulations are there. But that's why I think about it quite simplistically, because if the regulatory reporting that's required is a set of data points that they want to see, then unlocking that surely is the pathway forward to be able to look back through an organisation and go, okay, we're missing these fields and we've never collected them in the past. That's one intersection of the problem. The other is, is more legacy. It's how you actually capture that data in the first place. And if I think about when I'm onboarding a customer, I look at their name and that's unique to them and I can identify that through some sort of government identity, like a, a passport or a driver license. But when it gets to address, in some countries, addresses are completely written differently to others, yet they usually copied off one document and pasted into another system. And therefore you get something that we call in the payments geek world, unstructured data, i.e. the full address with no commas and the postcodes in there. Now what new payment schemes look to do or, or new data sets want to do is keep that all separate. So the, the address of your house, the number, the postcode in a separate field. And, and then that starts to make sure that this data is indexable and you can start to look at it in data sets so it does boil back to getting that data in the right place um, because then you know financial institutions can base their risk profiles of what's needed but then look at the source systems that that data is warehoused in and see if it's up to scratch with what the future looks like as well if that makes sense yeah i'm interested you use the word warehouse is, is that the answer, I thought I'm, I'm confident if I asked you the same question 20 years ago, you said, oh, you put it all into a data warehouse <laughs> uh, and you can keep the only underlying systems and legacy systems and you can respect different jurisdictional requirements and so on. <laughs> is, that, is that still the answer to getting that, my original question to getting that single view, is the answer still a data warehouse? It, it, it is a warehouse, but with people working on it that understand payments. And, and the indexing of every payment field or every field that's available to you is the key, right? So whether you are slicing the data by country, currency, address fields, postcodes, whatever, it's the indexing of the data in that warehouse pertaining to payments, which is important. I think most data warehouses as they grew up, as this became a thing, were just about getting it all in one place, right? It's then how you surface that and, and actually get that holistic view is what's important. Is this where the service identity is offering this, this cloud-based 
software or compliance as a service or on the software as a service service mm. um, is that is that what that describes this putting all this data into one place you can actually start to make use of it irrespective of where it came from or how legacy the system was or how different jurisdictional requirements are or how um, easy to work with various data sources are is that is that exactly. your answer yeah it is and um and it, it is as simple as that because we're looking at the right-hand side at the regulatory schema and we're looking at the left-hand side, the, the, the data we're getting through from payments only. And we can very quickly see that we're missing something because over here is this field and in a payment message like a legacy MT103, that would never exist. So we can work with the customer to point them towards another data set, but it is as simple as getting it into one place. Um, and that's what we do unlock. So we are providing up tools as a workflow item where, you know, thinking about payments operations teams or even that second layer of compliance teams having to review payments before they're actually submitted to the regulator are finding those incomplete fields because this is this is mitigation, right? The, the obligation is on a financial institution to report, not to actually, um, you know, be the police as such, but the framework is tight enough to make sure that if you have incomplete data, your obligation is to fulfill that field. And that's where we fit. Um, we can surface those gaps to the customers and we can show them that the, the commonalities too, right down to insight level, where you can say, did you realize that, you know, 50% of your payments that go to this country are always missing this field? That, that's a source data problem that you could perhaps unlock. So we go beyond platform capability and into advisory. It's not just a warehouse in the cloud. It's actually a warehouse which speaks to you. Yes, exactly. Now, my, my question is, how willing are banks to outsource these very expensive compliance obligations? I'm talking of regulatory reporting and, and the customer due diligence checks. Um, what sort of, I imagine you have the discussion with them. They come up with reasons why they wouldn't do that, might lose control. They might, you might not have the same security as they do. And I guess all the time they're concerned about getting fined by the, the regulators. So yeah. tell me, how how willing or unwilling are banks to, to buy your cloud-based uh, compliance as a service service? Well, we, we're testing it constantly. They're very willing. Um, it's not really an outsource, though. It's because we're not, um, we're not physically, we will submit payment data through the regulator. It's one of the features of our platform. But we are not, we're providing them with tools, right? So we're not really an outsource. We're a partner. And it's more of a tool that can be used to fix their business practices or fix their payment data. So it's hand in glove type of thing where they still have the obligation to make sure that the data is accurate. They are reviewing the tools and, and every bank has different configuration, right? That the, the, the interpretation of one field, like some things are black and white, but some of the rules in regulatory reporting are perhaps a little bit more gray where there is an intent if you've got the data to submit and these are the these are the frequent things that change within the regulatory rules where a regulator might want more information but gives a bank a lead time to be able to supply that but the intent of the platform is to be a tool that they should see us as a partner because we're unlocking where they can fix things up and point to where the source systems uh, perhaps don't have that complete and accurate data so that, that's sort of where we see ourselves. Um, how we've gone about approaching customers is, is, is 
by being upfront and saying, look, the benefits of this platform will only continue to increase. And that's why we truly see ourselves as a partner with, with a network effect, right? If we have, we're not sharing data with anybody, we're providing insights. So we know problems that are surfacing in certain markets or certain fields, or where the regulator may have certain pain points of lacking information. We're surfacing that as your your you described as a visual tool. And but the only way you unlock that is via a platform that many can use in a separate, you know, federated tenancy, but are joining our platform rather than it being something deployed onto a premise environment. That's sort of the first piece. I think that the pandemic that we're currently still in has, along with cloud adoption by banks wanting to reduce costs, is almost like a, a perfect storm for us because I found the conversation to be less burdening. I've found banks to be far more open to adopting a solution which is cloud-based and they're, and they're renting it and they're assembling their own platform with knowing that this is a partnership tool. Um, but I definitely think that the pandemic has accelerated cloud adoption for a couple of reasons. People have started to look at the cost they inherit uh, by running on-prem and that sort of migrated people to this idea of private cloud. But then if you can adhere to the security measures that a bank wants to uphold, you know, and go through that rigmarole, which identity is prepared to do. Um, some of these, you know, forms and, and, and criteria are, are quite robust, lengthy, in fact. But it only makes our performance of our platform stronger because if we can be resilient to the highest tests, then that gives the banks comfort that their data is in a secure place and being used for what it's supposed to be used for. So we haven't found it difficult. I mean, there will be some jurisdictions that haven't adopted perhaps more of a data sovereignty law where they might have adopted private cloud theology, but they haven't adopted public or, or more SaaS-based solution technology. But my, my answer to that is that we're, we're not a... Um, we're not a you know fixated on it always being public cloud. It's just about look if we have to deploy to a private cloud, it is an instance of our platform. We are on a product journey ourselves, which we're trying to unlock. You know multiple benefits from having multiple customers participating on it, and it will obviously be better for you in real time rather than us having to continue to deploy, you know production patches or or new versions into a private cloud, but. And, and obviously, it's more expensive to do that too, both from a bank's perspective and from ours, because we're maintaining a separate environment. So we're looking at speed and efficiency and cost at the same time. I'd like to come back to that point you made about um, the pandemic in just a second. Before I do, I'd like to clear up one issue, just because I suspect lots of banks listening to this will, will want to know the answer to this. And I think I know what the answer is. But you mentioned that uh, the client is responsible for the accuracy of the data and of the regulatory reports. So Identity takes no responsibility ultimately for delivering those regulatory reports to regulators. It's entirely the client's responsibility. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Now to go back to the to the to the pandemic thing, you mentioned that the pandemic had actually eased decision making in some of these banks, and uh, you've talked quite a lot about payments, and clearly the volume of of online or digital payments has gone up massively since the the pandemic came along. So you've got banks. And indeed, corporate clients of those banks suddenly having to go switch to online forms of payment, for which they, judging by my own personal experience and what you what you read about the, the increase in the 
uh, volume of, of fraud that's gone on as a result of all this, uh, a lot of those organizations were clearly not prepared for that. Mm. So um, is, it, is it that which has, which has helped, um, I mentioned this right at the outset, you know, you, you've joined the company, you have a payments background, um, is it, our clients coming to you in effect saying help? Um, this pandemic uh, switched digitization is giving us real problems. Can you help us? Um, y- yes, customers, I suppose we, we benefit from having uh, qu- quite a good awareness, I suppose, around what we are doing specifically in regulatory reporting, which, um, and we've done campaigns around the availability of our, of our platform, which has generated enough interest for people to come to us and go, yes, this looks like a problem you could solve for me. Then in an ongoing, I suppose, call them onboarding discussions, we find more and more things they want to unlock, which come back to exactly the point you just raised. Oh, we were thinking of solving that differently, but if we are adopting a cloud solution and we are going to go through this test of your environment to be able to put our data there so we can unlock the value of these payments, what we're missing, then why wouldn't we use it for that? And why would you? So I think it's a bit of chicken and egg. There's there's almost this realization as we keep to talk, talking about the problems that are around payment data and the transmission of those messages that unlocks that. Um, but have we got people beating down our door? Um, yes, but only because I think this is a new thing where if you do go back five years, would a financial institution impart its data? with a fintech, regtech company? Um, probably no, right? So this is the new world emerging. However, when I reflect on that, I think about sending a payment through a SWIFT gateway, which is very much, pretty much the same thing. Or banks that have outsourced their payments because they're small, they're utilizing um, a non-bank aggregator. They've been outsourcing, they've been putting their payment data into other systems that are cloud-based for years. So I think it's just more a realization of and a comfort with the capabilities um, technology companies can deliver around the robustness of their platforms. So it's it's a perfect storm. Like I said before, I think the timing is just right to be able to have those conversations and we're not beating our heads against a brick wall. Yeah. So it's not as big a jump for them as as they sometimes think. And at the risk of oversimplifying drastically if we think of payments as a as a data problem um, but payments is also an extremely complicated industry uh, it's got thousands of service providers tens of thousands even it's got multiple infrastructures uh, it's got a lot of pr- different practices and different processes I mean the use of checks in the United States is a classic example which are peculiar to individual countries they've got all these differences within countries and between countries you've got these tens of thousands of different uh, institutions involved. You've got these fintechs coming in, they've creamed off the revenues from the banks. It's becoming actually more complex now, mm. um, payments. So how on earth do you, as, a, as, as an entity, shape a strategy to, to approach such a vast, complex and rapidly evolving industry? Once again, it's um, defined schemas are, the, are sort of our bread and butter, right? Um, Forming a strategy as to how we will cater to customers, I think, becomes as simplistic as understanding how many different payment types they want to be able to us to ingest. Right, the, the hot topic is our business has grown up and it's 
firmly focused on the reg tech side and you know, of being able to get regulatory reports off the back of payments, which means that we're firmly in this cross-border space because that's what the regulators want to see primarily. Um, when you dive a bit deeper and you get into transaction threshold, that's when you need more than just cross-border payment data. And you might have uh, people depositing money at a, at a bank branch if they still exist or, or at an ATM uh, teller machine if they can. But they all aggregate up to a threshold amount that, that, the customer, that the bank may want to report on. That's when we're getting into more domestic data. And then there's the whole suspicious matter piece as well, which can be just an inkling that a bank has that wants to report to the regulator. But primarily we focus on the, the cross-border piece because it's usually the most error-prone. Why? Because most domestic schemes are actually quite flat in their information. They're, they are, are all known within the one ecosystem. Use, let's use faster payments as an example. It's using a sort code and an account number and a participator um, to unlock that entry and exit from the from getting near instant payments around the UK um, is far less complex than a cross-border payment, which has to consider jurisdiction, longer bank account, different details, purpose of payment, et cetera. But it all comes back to what the schema of the of whether it be SWIFT or whether it be a card messaging scheme or whether it be a domestic scheme, they're known quantities. So how we form a strategy around that is, is just by adding and adding and adding. Like, so jurisdictionally, Australia, we, we have covered, right? Because that's where we started. You can look for adjacent marketplaces that share near identical um, regulatory schemas. But forming a strategy, to your point, is actually quite simple because our, our business model is quite simple. It's about getting it in, understanding what needs to be unlocked, given those tools, and then, you know, over time, the users using the system will probably unlock more features that we, we haven't even thought about. Like, we want to see this type of field or we want to see this type of field, which, which is why I think it's overly simplistic. But when you start talking about this, people go, but we've never had that. We've never had a complete picture of all of our payments. Um, and so I feel like we're just placing ourselves off the back of having solved a lot of regulatory reporting problems. You know, we're moving into the space where we could unlock a lot more problems around payment data. Mm -hmm. right. So the strategy becomes quite clear in my mind, you know, that why not? If we're already doing business with you, we're already beyond that firewall of what you, you want to do and you want us to build more tools to unlock that data. Um, sure. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, well, you're talking as if payments and data are, are, are the same, different aspects of the same problem. So problems in payments really are data problems. So it is a natural area for you to, to get into, right? Well, at its simplistic form, to, to be able to understand that. I'm only a journalist. We're very, very simple uh, people that uh, can't hold too many ideas in our minds at once. But True. That's what, it's kind of what I'm hearing from you. So I hope, yeah. I'm, I hope I'm right. Yes, uh, I think so. Good. Um, you mentioned cross-border payments. Now, these are an area where the regulator is, of course, your friend. And by regulators, perhaps even the United Nations downwards, and certainly the, the BIS in Basel is taking a huge interest in uh, reducing the cost of, uh, of cross-border payments. Uh, not just the cost, but also trying to reduce the risk as well. Um, and banks have been reading the runes and deciding to get out of the correspondent banking business as well. 
because they can't be confident of the identity of their customer's customer and so on. So it's it's clearly a a, um, a hot area. Do you think that the the traditional system of making cross-border payments, which I mean correspond to banks providing access to domestic RTGS systems, do you think that way of making cross-border payments is in the long run doomed? I think it will change for sure. Um, I think cross-border payments will only increase. Is the old way of doing it um, not going to be around in five years? It'll be around in five years. Will it be around in 20? Probably not. Uh, my, my evidence points to the, there's a rise of global payment systems that are setting up outside of the SWIFT network. And it's no secret that you know the likes of Ripple, MasterCard, Visa, all, all are building their own closed loop payment systems. And the, the, the pulling back of correspondent banks from being participants as intermediaries is, was a big de-risking exercise that kicked off, right? And the, the inability to see nested accounts within perhaps downstream agency banks or you know, non-banks that were using the, the rails for payments, there was an inability for banks to see those nested payments and the activity of the underlying remitter. Um, and that, that continues to this day. Why does that problem exist is what I look at. And that problem exists because your onboarding mechanisms of understanding who you're doing business with, why you're doing payments for them, probably only goes to one layer in most you know, customer systems or, or customer relationship management tools. But And to go down those layers, some people don't even know or don't even collect that information. They just think of themselves as a payment aggregator and probably haven't thought those steps further. Therein lies the problem, and that created that whole de-risking phenomena right through the late 2000s into the early 2010s. So that pullback left gateways open, left big holes in, in, in traditional channels that you know, people were using. And like anything in supply and demand curves, right, when there's a limited amount of suppliers, the cost goes up because the demand became more frequent. And there's still banks to this day that can't open up US dollar accounts, right? And, and they can't unlock that capability for their customers because of the de-risking mechanism. So I think the emergence of other gateways will only continue to proliferate because that is the solution because they're thinking about it differently. They're looking at the problem differently. I mean, without going into any specifics of how other global gateways that are emerging are constructed, they're thinking about the customer first on one hand. So bank A might be already on this noted network and bank B is a customer. They can transfer that message real time and they might even be able to move that liquidity real time in the future too. So is it doomed the old way of doing it? Yeah, I think most industries point to cutting out the phenomena of middlemen or middle businesses it is right on our doorstep, the uberfication or, you know, the, 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 the taking out that extra layer that's not needed um, has already begun. It's the interoperability that perhaps needs a lot more work between SWIFT and XYZ or this network here and this network here, which is going to need exploring. But I come back to the data standards we talked about earlier. If there's some common theme of using information sharing um, and an interoperability, then it comes down to the data again of sharing it. But doomed long-term, 
Yes, but short term, I think we'll see more emergence of networks uh, and then, then a convergence later on. Now you mentioned you mentioned SWIFT, you mentioned interoperability. SWIFT was obviously set up to provide this secure network for the old correspondent banking system that remains their core business. If you were running SWIFT, um, what would be your what would be your advice to them strategically? I mean, they, they do have this standard side to their business, which would be helpful in interoperability, but do you have other ideas as to how they should evolve their basic business model to accommodate these changes you've described? Yeah, I think underlying, if you look at what the system is and what it was intended to do, um, it's probably still too federated, really. It's only available... I mean, it's available to non-banks through a corporate guys, but there's a lot more tools available to banks, um, which is, I suppose, because it's, it's owned by banks. It's, it's a cooperative. But I think if you're true to the technology drive and true to the framework, then... Open, if I look at the open banking movement across the world, and we've now got banks and non-banks that can equally handle a payment, why, why don't those non-banks have equal access to the global systems? So that's what I would be thinking about. I mean, you've built this great asset. It's utilised by 11,000 banks in the world, but there's 500,000 businesses that could probably innovate around it a lot quicker and better. And I think there needs to be more awareness around that because you can partner with Swift, but maybe there's more of a platform play that needs to come faster because the tools need to be more readily available. I'm not sure, but the advice would be, what about everyone? If we've got an open banking world, um, why is the interoperability limited to just banks um, of all the tools that are available today? I'd have to be at the Swift board meeting where... Uh... It's explained to the bank shareholders that uh, letting their customers use the network is the next best thing. But I, I suspect you're right. Anyway, CBDC, central bank digital currencies. What's the what's the impact of them going to be? We've seen these papers from the BIS suggesting that actually hooking up CBDC systems across national borders might be an alternative to the traditional correspondent bank into RTGS model. What do you think their impact will be on the cross-border payments in particular? I think they make a lot of sense. I mean, countries, I think back to the, the currency itself, the fiat. They exist today and they're traded between reserve banks through instant settlement or, but having a bilateral agreement between countries where the, the, the Bank of England is perhaps talking to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, my native country, the, that bilateral movement of funds in real time by exchanging a digital token Wow, that, that unlocks a whole different world, doesn't it? Because therefore the sovereign banks in each country could participate in those networks. And, you know, if, if you're getting the information structure right back to the data when you're building a beneficiary and you can unlock all that data through a platform of the beneficiary you need to send it to, and that's beyond the currency, then you have removed the need for intermediaries and you have probably removed the need for the SWIFT network. You're using a standard of information sharing to swap the liquidity side. Um, then you've just got to get the messaging right. So I, 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 it'll happen. It will most definitely happen. The the way I think the payment messaging world will 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 be will be very well placed for the adoption of central bank digital currencies as the movement of money. I I think that the treasury systems will be 
where the work's needed, the money needs to be spent because you're now thinking in terms of um, a legacy currency and a digital currency, but it's the same currency. But the benefits that you unlock with a with a, a central bank digital currency is that it is immutable, right? It'll be able to be tracked. Some of the papers that I've read, the fears around being able to pin a person's identity to the, the dollar or the pound that's been spent, maybe that is the intent in some countries. I'm, I'm not, not placed to comment on that. But I think the back to the financial crime element that it solves, when you can prove why someone should have money, it's certainly got to be a good thing, right? What do you think the impact of things like that will be if CBDCs start to have that sort of impact? What will the impact be on domestic payments industries, especially the intermediaries, the banks? Well, I, th I think we're already worried about it, right? The, the, a lot of bank payments today in a domestic marketplace rely on a card network, right? So you've got Apple Pay in your wallet and you've got a card in your wallet. You've got these merchant machines, if I think about all payments, we're largely making payments online through a card mechanism. We're not doing it directly from our bank account. The theory of a central bank digital currency, if it was an ecosystem to me, um, could certainly open up accounts that are registered on it, right? That, that, that you could move money from one bank account to one bank account in real time for any type of payment. Now, if I want to pay you, Dominic, I, I can grab your bank account details and pay you. You've got to give, I, I can use the confirmation of pay mechanism in the UK here to check that it is you, so I'm not being defrauded. But that's that's about it. But when I go to um, I go to the supermarket or whether I go out for dinner, I'm going to use my card to make that payment. I can't make it directly from a bank account. If I have a digital wallet and that 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 you know, a restaurant has a digital wallet, I could just pay them. They might even be able to give me a discount or some loyalty, right? Because at the moment, I know that they're going to pay merchant fees. That's what I think it unlocks. It starts to think of a different world back to whether, where we used to pay cash. Um, but with this timeline of events that have taken place with that currency, so you can prove it is how it was earned or how it was valued and how it is, how it is treated, um, becomes far more of a tool in, in any country to be able to monitor money movement. You don't see the banks as the main providers of those digital wallets you've just described? They can be. I think what's emerging, though, is a loyalty space that perhaps that is the final arc of, you know, of what will be free to everyone to participate in if they've got the right infrastructure. I mean... What is a bank account today? It's a, it's a set of numbers on a ledger um, that I, I'm loyal to my bank because they provide it. Mm -hmm. But in the future, I do all of my shopping, largely, unfortunately, in the last month through Amazon. But, <laughs> but where is my loyalty? <laughs> well, it's Christmas shopping, isn't it, this time of year? And I have young children, so it's expensive. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I like the feature that some some um, non-banks are focusing on and that's unlocking how brands want to participate in the banking system. Uh, some, a light touch of it is called banking as a service, but what do you need to do? You need to be able to move money. You need to be able to build loyalty. You need to be able to hold accounts and you need to be able to offer regulated financial products. If, if I know I'm probably simplifying it, but 
why does it have to be a bank that does all these things when you and I both know today there are services offered by non-banks that cover all of those bases. Mm -hmm. So the account is the last piece of sovereignty. And if that's accessible by non-banks, then sure, that could become a very competitive space. Are intermediaries like banks going to actually add value to the payments process in the future? Do you have any ideas on that? Look, I think banks will always have a place. I mean, at their core, they, they're able to generate... I mean, they're, they're a safeguarding mechanism for money, savings, and then they are able to lend that out. They've got large liquidity pools to be able to choose the right businesses and their investment vehicles. So I, I think there's always a place for, I even, I even think banks are going on that brand journey themselves to position themselves differently because they've grown up as a bank, but does that mean they're going to be one tomorrow? They're perhaps not going to get into um, the same sort of industries that are attacking them. Like I don't see... A bank becoming an Amazon, I'd more see an Amazon becoming a bank. But there's certainly a part to play in that brand loyalty and what other services can be unlocked because they are handling the money. I think that comes back to the loyalty of you see it today. I'll, I'll use another example of what's happened recently in, in the UK market, um, where Chase Bank is offering quite a high loyalty, you know, return on bank accounts being open. And that's clearly to me a loyalty play around you know if you spend money at this merchant if you spend money at this merchant you're going to get more cash back and i think that's a smart play to build ecosystems of brands where you're you're, you're almost sharing services now i sometimes think that banks have, are kind of faking it because they don't have the systems they don't have the technologies to to support for example you know instant payments has been um, going around the world, Australia, as you know, has been a, a leader in this with its new payments platform. But instant payments become <coughs> much the the it's kind of been overtaken by CBDCs as an issue now. But instant payment has, has been something the banks have been pushing as a as a huge service to customers over the last um, five to ten years, I suppose. Mm. And um, but often, as in the UK with faster payments, it isn't actually instant payment. And the banks remain on risk. It's a it's a netted system you know it's still done in the rtgs in a batch processing way at the end of the day but it appears to the customer like they're getting um instant payment just like it appears when they go to the website that it's all the data is all there and so on so kind of um illusion going on here and yet we're asked to look forward to this future in which banks again and indeed corporates are going to have technology which is so powerful we can live with multiple currencies we'll have apps on our smartphones which allow us to tell well, it's better to pay with this currency for this particular transaction, that currency for that particular transaction. In other words, this comfortable world we've lived in with one single fiat currency in each jurisdiction with these very expensive cross-border payments is all, and, and being, as you said, mainly card-based, is going to disappear. And the world is going to become much more colourful, much more customer-driven. Do you actually think that the banks and the corporates that you talk to are yet in possession of sufficiently powerful uh, and intuitive technologies to actually move towards the world I've, I've just described of lots and lots of different currencies uh, being used to complete different transactions. And it's, a, it's a great world you've just described, right? It's, <laughs> I, I, I know some banks that are well on that journey. Um, do they have the underlying technology today? No. What's, what's smart, though, the, the smart play is partnering or building the platform that can adopt technologies in a scalable, rapid way. 
because there is if most companies if most companies grew up thinking including banks thinking we should build everything ourselves then we can be masters of our own domain that will get you a certain distance but the explosion of new technologies and new ideas and what you just described all these features that people want at their fingertips i think can only be achieved if you're adopting and building a platform that can onboard technology and taking the time to partner with the right other businesses because ultimately what you're trying to do is keep your customer right so if your goal as a business is to keep your customer therefore you're going to have to rapidly adopt technologies or expand services by making them available to them and the only way to do that is by by partnering with other businesses or unlocking perhaps features that somebody else has already built but aggregating them under your brand and your platform then that surely has to be the way that you can compete um so that's that I've, I've seen banks approach that sort of methodology and sometimes it's coined lego banking right where i'll do these services and we'll be really good at this but we're going to rent this and we're going to buy that and we're going to we're going to spin up a little a venture that'll work at companies that do this, and, and you're building now an ecosystem which is fostering fintech innovation, but you're also keeping an ear to the ground for what the customer demand is, and, and we have seen that in Australia with the regulator taking a very open view towards what, what you know cryptocurrencies present as a a a regulatory problem, but also b hey the customers are already doing it. Um, how do we make sure that we're embracing this future, which we don't really can't put a dot on the horizon to see where it's going to end, but how do we facilitate the right behaviors to make it a, a safe environment for customers and a secure one by, and, and not being too restrictive. So long winded way of answering your question, but I think some banks are already on that journey, Dom, where they have approached setting up their business for future success, being able to listen and pivot. And, and those that perhaps are still fixated on building everything themselves will be the underlying problem because they won't be able to move as fast or adapt as fast. So I don't think the technology exists today because it's still continuously rapidly being invented. However, those that can adopt from a platform perspective, these new services, um, are going to be far better placed. You chuckled when I when I, I described my my vision of Manchester United pounds and Wolverhampton Wanderers pounds and, and and so on. But perhaps a more realistic, uh, a more near term vision would be one in which we have central bank digital currencies, uh, we have cryptocurrencies which you've just mentioned, but we also have stable coins which we haven't talked about. And those banks and those corporates you've been describing could all, of course, start to issue uh, yeah. stable coins. Um, is that a, a world you think is likely to come into being in the near term, or do you, you've just said you don't want to put a timeline on it, but is that a more sort of conceivable, a more realistic vision of, of how multiple currency economies might come about? A mix of stablecoins, CBDCs, and cryptocurrencies? I think they'll all exist, Dominic, because um, they all serve different purposes to me, in my mind. Uh, the the central bank digital currency is 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 migrating a, a fiat into a more traceable mechanism over time. I mean, 
probably no need in some countries to keep printing loads of money. So might as well issue it in a different way. We've got to keep up with inflation, right? Mm -hmm. So the the cryptocurrency world being unregulated and and very hard to define what problem it solves, uh, apart from, you know, it's, it's been, it's been utilized as a, as a value of exchange, but it's pegged back to a fiat currency to unlock it. So you can send the crypto to a crypto payment to facilitate something, but, that means you have to have priced it in a cryptocurrency, an amount, and any amount in this world to me is still pegged back to a fiat currency because you've got to realize value if you're buying and selling something. But they have a place to play because I, I, I think they unlock a future of potential loyalty, right? Um, almost to that brand phenomenon of what's the difference between a Manchester United pounds versus mm-hmm. a Manchester United coin? it's a store of value and a loyalty that you're going to align yourself with if you feel like it. Um, so I don't know when that will land, but I, I certainly think that that's what will become some of the uses of cryptocurrency. And then the stable coin, I think, is more about ecosystems, right? It's about unlocking liquidity movement as well. So if it's a, I don't know, a bank coin that's, can be issued to a participant. So therefore it's pegged back to a certain currency and but it unlocks the movement of money across border faster. That's that that's really a data entry computational mechanism um, that works for the bank or works for the financial institution. Um, it's always stable because it's it's pegged back to a sovereign dollar in a way that it'll always be one for one or not or whatever mechanism, but I I think they have three distinct roles to play, all of which are quite different. But I don't think anyone's going to stop an organisation wanting to invent a way they want to move money around. Um, It's just whether it becomes practical with the emergence of one over the other. So maybe a world of central bank digital currencies removes the use for a stable coin in the future. I'm not sure. But I think they'll all continue to exist at this point in time. You mentioned liquidity, and I'd like to ask you a question about that in a, in a much narrower sense in a minute. Before I do, you've talked very um, convincingly about, about brand, about loyalty, about building ecosystems of, of commercial entities. Um, are loyalty points, the sort of currency of those brand loyalty ecosystems you've described, are they a kind of currency yeah. which could be used? I think about it this way. Um, if I go and uh, if I go and buy a coffee down at my local coffee cart, they might give me a stamp, right? Uh-huh. If I lose that, if I get five stamps, I get a free coffee. But if I lose that card and someone picks it up, they've got that stored value, right? But what that loyalty card is is just it, it, it's it's stored value that can't be unlocked. Is how I look at it. Because it's not interchangeable. It, it's not pegged back. Technically, it's pegged back to sterling because I paid for those five coffees in the first place. And it's valued to the merchant in sterling that they redeem it. But I can't go and swap that for another coffee at the coffee cart that's down the road because they don't recognize it. And I think that when you think of those stored, just that basic, however you perceive loyalty, if you value it, could be interoperable with the likes of a 
say a cryptocurrency because if you can exchange something back to its principal um the fiat currency then you are starting to unlock loyalty right in a true way um sometimes i get points back on my credit card some credit cards i can swap them for avios points but there's there's a quite a convoluted unlocking mechanism back to value and i'm sometimes i'm not even able to do it dominic i, I can't turn my avios points back into sterling can i right so i, I see it i'd like to see a future where there is interoperability, sure, at a cost. I don't mind paying some sort of margin to realise it into another value. But um, I think that unlocks choice. And then you can build loyalty plans on the basis of that mechanism rather than storing it in something that you, you can't, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, liquidity. I want to ask you about this on a, on, a, on a narrow front because I think that payments revolutionaries and this is true of securities market revolutionaries too, they often leave this question of liquidity out of the picture. If you're going to settle a transaction in something close to real time, you need to have the asset in your, in your bank account when that, when that happens. Now, you, know, you need to make a payment online to realize that's, that's the case yourself without developing an overdraft or something. So hmm. you, do you think that liquidity is going to be a constraint on the realization of these faster data-driven, instantaneous multi-currency um, payments we're going to see in the future. I mean, what, I'm asking what sort of part credit still has to pay yeah. in, in this marketplace. Well, yes, yes to the first part. Um, it's a huge risk, right? It's a huge concern um, about rapid payments moving because the payment scheme that are new may be able to handle the data flow and the information and the messaging from bank A to bank B or account A to account B, but then the money, money moves. Mm -hmm. And if it's irrevocable, like you can't pull it back, then it does open you up. But I, I, I think it's more around the, the liquidity pull behind it, right? So you just mentioned the part that credit has to play. Well, it, it will always have a part to play if people don't physically have the money and we call it an overdraft in personal terms but it, it could be a bank line that a smaller bank is perhaps using to be able to let all their payments go throughout a day and, and they're just topping it up but that that comes at a cost whether that passes on to a customer or not is really up to the um up to the institution itself but i, I suppose if you does does will credit have a part to play i think for all time um, if you don't have the wherewithal yourself to unlock it faster, right? So if you can't unlock that asset in a rapid time to be able to facilitate what we will call real-time payments, then, then there will be a cost to use a facility. Um, if you can unlock it fast and move that liquidity across, then the part that these real-time schemes will have to be into operating with is with, is with a central bank, right? Which is back to what we were talking about before, why I think there's so much energy around um, central bank digital currencies because they're both starting to talk to the same problem, right? Why bring out a whole new brand new payment scheme without a brand new way of moving the money like along with the message? Because if that's the intent to make sure that settlement takes place faster, then surely 
a new digital way of looking at currency itself is the way to do that. But I don't think we would have been having this discussion if people hadn't invented cryptocurrency. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about the movement of not just the payment message, it's the actual liquidity that flows with it as well. I mean, if we go back to the traditional payments banks and we think about how they should react strategically to all the things you've talked about, you know, faster settlement, correcting errors to enable that, data, using data to, to add value to your customers, achieving interoperability. And the, the answer the traditional payments industry has come up with for this, uh, not just for cross-border, but domestically as well, is to, is to have this migration to the ISA 2082 standard starting next year and completing it by 2025. My question to you is, do you think that's actually going to work? Are the banks, are the customers, are the regulators for that matter going to be ready in time uh, for that to happen? Or is there going to be a sort of messy, prolonged, botched process of, of, of transition by some big banks, but lots of small banks not making the transition? So you've got this long period of coexistence with people on different standards, yet operating in a marketplace where you have to be faster have to add value, have to have fewer errors, have to interoperate. You have three or four questions in there. I'll, I'll try and tackle them one by right. one. Um, yeah, a multi-headed question, um, forgive yeah. me. No, no, no problem. Look, I, look, we know it's a standard that has to be adopted um, by the banks participating in the SWIFT network. Um, the date's already shifted once. So, you know, we're, we're now steering into next year, November, to to begin that migration process and in order of ranking, some banks have to be on it by next November, some will take time. And by 2025, that messaging standard of MT, the old Finn language, ceases. Do I think that that'll extend? Um, it could. We've, we've already seen an extension because of a global pandemic. Um, now that's, these events, you know, black swan events per se, can crop up and, and that could push out the timelines. But I think most banks uh, are adopting a transformation process. So part two, do I think it'll be a success? I, I think what most um, organisations are trying to do, and certainly the ones I've worked with, uh, are making sure they're adhering to a new language. So if it's not an, an MT-103 now, it's in the new MX format. It's a, it's a PAC-008. Mm -hmm. the, the, the different versions you talked about, I think, just there around, you know, whether it's version 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12 of a standard um, may create some interoperability issues because one country may be saying, this is the standard. We're going for version 11, and one country might be version 9. I see transformation tools in the marketplace that are already catering to that. And that's how most organizations will have to solve it because it's, it's actually quite a short timeline, right? So before a payment goes out through the SWIFT gateway or after it comes through from the SWIFT gateway, there's an expectation if that's the layer of transmission that your downstream systems within a, an institution can cope with that new message. I don't think that's being tackled in the three-year timeline. I think that the ability to participate purely for the payment message is what's being focused on. So it, it unlocks things that you can see who charged which payment through the GPI scheme, but you'll also have this um, 
the sharing of extra formatted messages which you could download into financial crime systems or market insight platforms. That, that will come, but if you look at the origination of that payment data and those legacy systems, they won't change in three to four years, I don't think. It would certainly, that would be rewriting the whole platform of every application inside a bank. So I think what ISO 20022 does is it's like a, even though it's only mandatory, it's not a regulatory thing, it does force change. D does it fix the problem though? No, not, not in my opinion. I think it's, it, we would, and as payments people in the world, we were desperately in need of, of a more enriched file format to be able to exchange payment information, which instead of the limited fields on the old language will be, will be sunset. Um, but it doesn't, it won't be an, an immediate fix for how you unlock all that value within a payment because it's still a message. It's still a message filled with data from source systems or transformed at the source where it needs to be sent. So I think the road's a lot longer to unlocking the value from it beyond making the change to the new language now. Does it help you? And one of the things we're always told about IC2082 is it can carry more data. So does it help you with your regulatory reporting, your financial crime? Well, yes, we're the legendary identity platform already caters to ISO 20022. Yeah. Well, we had to because we've already got customers that are adopting the the standard, right? So they will shift in November next year. So to be able to ingest their payments data, we had to understand what it would look like. So we're already catering to that. Where we go from our, whether we offer those tools or not, we'll, we'll likely be maybe co-jointly with some of the experts that have already been doing this. We've already uh, adopted a tool ourselves to transform it for ourselves. And that's not just between um, like a, a, an MT and an MX message. We've got a transformation tool that will take a payment schema from here and change it into a payment schema from another jurisdiction. That's how we look at the, the tool, what's missing on one side and what's missing on the other. So to be ready for... ISO 20022 wasn't a leap for us. We have purely focused on, on the payment data messages, MT103 and 202 to start with, and we can then adopt other standards from there if we need to widen it out to any other types that are used. In that translation process, is the ISO 20022 has this common data dictionary, you know, this is, what a, who a, this is how you describe a payer, this is how you describe a, a payee, so you've got this defined, this defined vocabulary, if you like, or dictionary, is that is that something you use in the translation? Is it, is it irrespective of whether the, the migration to 2022 works, could that common data dictionary be a useful component in creating a more, a world in which data flows more easily? Yeah, well, because they're so clearly defined, it's really just a mapping exercise. Right. As long as we know the version control. So Bank A says we're using version 10 and we go, great, we've got that in the catalogue. So... If version 13 or 14 comes out and some banks says they're using that, for us, it's a mapping exercise, which I'm not going to do our, our, our technology and product engineering the service. It's a bit of work for them to do to make sure they've triple checked it. However, not talking about revolutionary change within versions here. It's more about interpretation of them. So I think it, it works well as 
I think I look at it like this. I look at it as a dictionary that probably comes out with a new version every year with a few more words in it, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to, our obligation as a, as a company and one of our unique, I suppose, propositions is that that is on us. It is on us to keep up to speed with what the regulator wants, what the payment schemas are in the world, because that takes the burden off our clients from having to think about it. And that's why we do sort of think of ourselves as more of a partner where we can say, we'll do the heavy lifting here. So if that regulations in this country changes, don't worry about it. We're already taking in your payment data. We'll know the change here. If there are any extra fields that we're going to need to catch from you, we're going to see that well in advance because it's not like they just drop new schemes tomorrow. There'll be enough warning here to be able to update our system and then give you a heads up if we need to update those files. And what about APIs? These are the devices data is meant to, to flow through. Do they need to be standardized as well? I think they well, the ones we have to operate from an external perspective already are. I mean, <clears throat> do we on our platform side, I think we have far more enriched information than what we can send to the APIs. And therein lies our, I suppose, another one of our value propositions, Dominic, because you will always need these intermediary tools <clears throat> because if a regulator doesn't need all this information, they're never going to ask for it. But to get all that data in one place, we're going to need all the payment files. And then you've got all this leftover in between information that, that wouldn't be used if you don't choose to do so. And that's fine as well. But in so far as standardizing the APIs to be a commonality, I, I, I think that's always going to be in the, in the realms of the language writers, right? So if I think about our internal technology stack, it's probably written in three or four different languages, depending on what component we had to ingest, what, what was the flavor of the month, or what, what was the new, right down to where can we best recruit people with the skills to do development and engineering. So I, I think as long as it's talking a common language that you can scale down to, it's fine, but I don't see any major problems with interoperability there. I certainly don't hear about any. Now, we've talked a lot about banks. Can I ask you about one other component of the, the, the traditional established industry, if you like? I'm talking here of the card networks. You yourself pointed out a minute ago that most payments are basically card-based at the moment. What happens to them if the world evolves in the sort of directions we've been talking about today? They lose revenue, for one. Um, it, there's, a, there's quite a mechanism there, as we all know, between whether you're the merchant, whether you're the acquirer, whether you're the issuer, whether, um, whether you're putting enough volume through, the rate cards are on, etc. Look, these are all schemes that have grown up and we're all quite aware of. So there's a... But I, I already think that the big card companies of this world have, have quite rapidly adapted to this. And the changing of the guard is sometimes it's been regulatory driven too, like you can't charge more for a credit card payment at a terminal of a merchant <clears throat> brought on by regulatory change. But I think they've already adapted into being a real-time focused payments business and debranded themselves away from being card at the end of their name, right? So the money that they've invested into technology companies and buying, buying up services and building services is extraordinary. So I think they already know it as a future, 
but they can still participate by implementing other payment mechanisms with existing customers. Uh, so I think I, I think they'll continue to do quite well because I've already seen the behaviours change from a card-based world to let's be in the payments world. Right, so they are adapting. Yes. Okay, I must ask you, this is my penultimate question, uh, and it's a slightly unfair one, but it is suggested to me by your by your name originally. This is digital identity. It's one of our favourite things at, at Future of Finance. We think this is, this is a very powerful tool uh, for, for changing the structure of entire economies, just not just financial systems. What, where, where do digital identities fit into what you do? For example, is tying digital identities to payments um, a, a better solution than the great paraphernalia you have of trying to check that your counterparty is who they say they are? Do they have a part to play in this future we've been talking about? Yeah, look, the, the name identity specific to us, firstly, came about by thinking about knowing your transaction identity. And we wanted to really focus on giving an accurate and complete picture of the identity of a payment. However, your question around digital identities, of course they have a part to play. I, I think we're a reg tech. We've, we've solved a lot of regulatory technology problems for customers. And one of our ambitions is to, you know, fight financial crime in whichever way we can add to it. It's one of the sort of founding principles of our business. Digital identities for us truly do unlock that. Um, a, a concept of making sure that you can validate a digital identity pertaining to a payment is certainly tools I'd look at if they were prevalent. The problem I, I see at the moment is that they're not global or universal, right? And they're really in, there's a lot of uh, concepts of how they will tie together around a central bank digital currency or the feature of an account. So our world at the moment is growing up around payments data. And I think of digital identities as a component of a piece of payments data. So we rely on it um, as they change in shape and, and morph or become more prevalent, then we're going to have to cater to ingesting that information alongside the payments. Do we overtly want to be a digital identity company, though, uh, because we've called ourselves identity? No, no, because we're, we're solving a problem with the bank's data. Providing a token out to, say, use that would, would be a very ambitious task. But we like to say we, we're building the platform that will know your transaction. And I do, I do think digital identities will most certainly clear up a lot of financial crime. It will certainly be needed for a true use of a central bank digital currency where you can pay from account to account and hide that information that you don't want seen under a privacy banner, but also expose your name up so I can qualify and pay you differently. Um, and they will be needed to transmit to other jurisdictions along with the payment, all right? So yes, this digital identity was verified by the government of this country and you pass it on through the payment message to another jurisdiction if they trust each other. I think some of that will be unlocked with the, with the CDBC stuff, though, because it will be driven off the integrity of knowing who owned that digital dollar or pound or shilling or whatever the currency will be. Mm -hmm. Listening to answer that last question, I think I, I, I finally understood why what, what you saw as attractive when you went to to identity, but but perhaps just as my I promise this is my last question. Sure. Um, just tell listeners 
um, you, you'd obviously worked um, in a large payments network. You'd, you'd run and reinvented payments for a, for a global bank. You, you're now working at Identity. You joined early this year. What was, the, what was the real attraction for you of making that switch out of the payments industry into what Identity does? Good question. I, I, you get to a point where you've you solve the problems with the tools that you've got or you can find in the marketplace, right? And I became one of those people that probably has said to themselves, stop talking about it, go out and fix it. And, and what I saw with what identity has, has been doing is solving really niche problems. I it didn't try and tackle the end-to-end solution of all payments being frictionless globally in three years' time. It said, we've got a platform, customers have got a specific problem where they want to be able to remediate their payment data and report it correctly to the regulator. And I said, that is, it's deliberate, it's focused, it's solving a real problem, and it's scalable, right? And then when I got further and further into my investigation of the company. Before I joined, I, I realized that what they were doing was as simple as capturing that payment data and offering up tools. And I could think of another, you know, I could think of the, the world from a global perspective. Sure, it was being solved in Australia, but adjacently, every country has this obligation to a regulator to store or report every cross-border transaction. So, now the problem's not just been solved in one place, it's been, been solved everywhere potentially. Now that you've got the, and the one of the things as I've built out payments platforms or worked with payment systems is providing up tools that I've had to build them three or four times in different organizations um, from scratch, right? Uh, how to build a beneficiary correctly, how to, how to know the purpose of payment for that country over there. These are tools that you should be able to be able to grab off a cloud service and, and implement. Um, I won't say at very low cost because you know I've got to have a commercial hat on here. But th- these are these are the reasons why myself and a few other colleagues have have taken this step that we can truly lend our knowledge to technology because quite often we find customers that do want the problem solved but probably don't know quite how to solve it. So it's a it's a nice step to take. Mm-hmm. Higginson, thanks very much for taking so much time to talk to us. My absolute pleasure.